0: Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've been here before, then you would usually see me in this area. Uh, So I've just moved over a couple of feet and serving in a different capacity this morning. And I am honored to bring the word to you today. I'm grateful for this opportunity to preach and give Ryan a break. Ryan is gracious with this pulpit. And that is a good thing. It is good for Ryan and his family. It's good for us, other preachers and teachers, to have opportunity. And it's good for you, the church, to hear from other men. We will continue in our series in Matthew. We'll be in chapter 13. Last week, Ryan showed us kingdom growth through a few of the parables there. This week, we will see kingdom worth in the parables of Matthew 13, 44 through 52. Let's read that. I'll read it for us, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, and he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Have you ever discovered something new and been so passionate about it that it reorders your entire life? Could be a new diet, could be a new exercise program, could be a new TV show. It just becomes everything about your world. You talk about it. You think about it all the time. You tell everyone about it. Why do we do that? Why do we, what motivates us to make that new thing our entire personality? Well, I think we see some examples of that in today's passage. So if I could summarize all that I want to tell you today, it would be this. For the joy of treasuring Christ we gladly embrace the cost of the kingdom, to escape the judgment of the kingdom, and explain to others so they can understand the nature of the kingdom. So let's look at that first part. Number one, the joy of the kingdom. In verse 44, a one-sentence parable, we see a man finds a treasure buried in a field. And I know what you're thinking. Who hasn't done that? Who hasn't just stumbled across a treasure in a field, right? Now, that's, it, we need a little historical context there, right? Because uh, this was actually common in, in that day, well, common for people to bury treasures in their fields, or uh, because they didn't have banks. They didn't use banks the way we do. Uh, and so they would, tre- they would bury their valuables uh, in the ground. Um, and so this man we're not sure who he is in the parable. He could be just some random passerby. He could be a worker of the field, could be a farmer working the field. Uh, he doesn't own the field, uh, but he comes across a treasure, and he looks at it, he uncovers it, he sees what it is, and then he buries it, and then goes and sells all that he has. Uh, he wasn't even looking for it, so This wasn't a treasure hunter. Uh, I'm from Florida, and, I, and we would see people out on the beach all the time with their metal detectors looking for all kinds of things in the, uh, in the sand. This guy wasn't looking. He just stubbed his toe on the corner of a chest or drove his plow into a chest and then discovered it and saw what it was. This was the best day of this guy's life. He came across a treasure so valuable that he went and sold all that he had. First, a bit on Ethics. Jesus isn't making a point on business ethics, on how you should handle affairs like finding random treasure or money lying around. Uh, so in parables, it's, it's key to focus on the, on, the, on the right details and on the right emphasis. So Jesus is trying, uh, not teaching us business ethics, but kingdom ethics, that this man finds a treasure, and then his response is, is what is key, uh, what he does then. He finds it, he digs it up, he recognizes its worth. And then something happens. The man responds. Something changes. In his, is, it, uh, is it his surprise? Maybe a little bit of surprise to find a treasure. Is it his precise calculation of counting and, and, and taking a ledger of all that he found? No, it says his joy. In his joy, he went and sold all that he had. So I want to take a moment and consider joy. Christian, have you considered uh, what Christian joy should look like in our lives. For a concise definition of Christian joy, let's turn to the great purveyor of Christian joy, John Piper. And he writes that joy is a good feeling or emotion that is in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his word and in his work. So joy for a Christian should be a defining characteristic. It's uniquely Christian, I would say. Uh, A joyless Christian should be somewhat of an oxymoron. Christians can be sad. we, We are sad all the time. Jesus wept. Jesus had a full range of emotions. We see in the Psalms a full range of emotions. But joylessness should not define us. It is one of the fruit of the Spirit, and we are known by our fruit. So are you known, Christian, by your joy? If joylessness is a defining trait, then it may be because, uh, brothers and sisters, we have been treasuring the wrong things. Are you valuing something else more than Jesus? Are you placing the weight of your joy on something that cannot hold it? This will produce joylessness. No, but this man, his joy was in recognizing the worth of the treasure, and that empowered him the Spirit's work to empower us to see the beauty of Christ, that empowered him to do whatever he had to do to possess it. He understood that no matter the cost, it was worth it. So the joy of the kingdom is in the value of the kingdom. And we see this continued in the the sister parable or the twin parable with the pearl. Uh, Continuing on in verse 45, uh, it's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So this partner parable of the pearl is the other side of the parabolic coin. Uh, or parabolic pearl, if you will. Uh, there's many overlapping ideas. Uh, but there's a few, I think, I think at least two, key differences. Well, one is it's a merchant, right? And this, this other man is just an unknown man. Uh, in, this, uh, in this merchant, uh, do you notice what he's doing that's different than the, the man in the field? He's searching, right? He's looking. Uh, Isn't that like how uh, different uh, people come into the kingdom? Sometimes uh, we just stumble upon it. I would say that's closer to my experience with the kingdom. I was a pastor's kid raised in the church. I was just, the kingdom was always there and and present in my life. I wasn't looking for it until I found it and saw the, the beauty and the joy of it for myself. But others are searching. So this man was searching and he was searching for uh, the one pearl that he found. So some of you came into the kingdom searching. You were searching for pearls. And for some of you, pearls were maybe actual wealth and earthly possessions. Maybe some of your pearls were world religions. You were trying all of them, and you just got to Christianity and thought, well, let's see what this is all about. That might be you here this morning. Uh, Other pearls could be just experiences, uh, life experiences, journeys, and adventures you go on. But like this man, once you find the one pearl, the rest don't matter anymore. So this man found the one singular pearl, the pearl above all pearls, and this man knew his pearls. So once you find that one, uh, the rest uh, fade from view. It's our one singular focus this pearl. Everyone knows that you're about this one pearl. So the joy of the kingdom is in the value of the kingdom, and the value of the kingdom is in the one singular treasure or pearl of the kingdom. So why is the kingdom so valuable? What is this treasure? What is this pearl? And you could ask every kid in the children's ministry today, and they would say, Jesus, it's Jesus, and that is the correct answer here today. Because Jesus is the treasure. And he is the one pearl above all pearls. He is the best investment you can ever make. The one in whom, as Paul writes in Colossians 2, are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The one whom, we sang earlier, demands our soul, our life, our all. For the joy of treasuring Christ, we gladly embrace the cost of the kingdom. So, point number two the cost of the kingdom. And we see that in both the Sister Jim parables again. Both the man and the merchant, they went after they found the one treasure, the one pearl, they went and sold all that they had to buy it so that they could possess it. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom that we present to you. This kingdom demands everything. You can't bring anything with you into this kingdom. We have to, uh, like like the man and the merchant, we have to impoverish ourselves before we can buy it, before we can come in. We come in poor. The kingdom of God is not a simple addition onto your lives. It's the whole thing. Jesus isn't the premium subscription. Uh, It's it's not an addition to the house. It's a complete remodel. There's no corner of your life that you can keep to yourself and and have it be unchanged. It all has to go. The kingdom of heaven doesn't affect 10% of your giving and your time. It affects all your time. It affects all of your giving. So have you counted the cost Follow Jesus lately? What might you be asked to give up, to sell? Are you prepared to give up everything? Jesus doesn't ask all of us to literally sell all our earthly possessions to follow him. He did the rich young ruler, if you remember. But this rich young ruler found his earthly possessions more valuable than Jesus. So he turned away. But we are all asked to give up everything. And one way that looks is we are all asked to give up our sin and our self-rule and our self-value and put, put all of that and place all of that into Jesus. <laughs> so being willing, here's a, here's a key point, a key, I think, the, uh, theological interpretive point. Being willing to sell everything is a condition to receive the kingdom. It is not a condition to earn the kingdom. So note the order of the two, the man and the merchant. They, they find, then they sell, and then they buy. They didn't go and sell everything in order to earn the kingdom. They didn't buy their salvation. They didn't buy a ticket into the kingdom, and we can't either. But they gladly, once they saw the kingdom, they gladly sold everything earthly to receive what is eternal, what is of ultimate value. And... The emphasis is not on this necessarily the sacrifice that these men made, but on what they gained. They made a killing. Sometimes you read these and you might think, "Well, oh, man, giving up everything, that, that, that's a lot of work, and that's a lot to give up. I might have a lot of possessions. No, these men, they came out on the, on the, on the right side of this deal. Uh, they, they gladly sold everything, and they didn't lose anything. The emphasis is not on what they gave up, but on what they gained. First, the gem. Then, the sacrifice. First, the joy. And then, the change. I read a commentator this week that said, joy is the great engine of change. So, for the joy of owning the gospel, possessing the kingdom, we, like these men, gladly become poor, sell everything. Get rid of all of our things. And where have we heard that before? Maybe Matthew 5. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? They will have the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is what these men did. That's what this merchant did. They became poor to possess the kingdom. And we follow Christ's example. In 2 Corinthians 8, he became poor so that we could become rich. Paul writes, And though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What a great exchange. So is there something in your life that if the Lord asked you to sell it, to gain the kingdom, would you hesitate? We aren't all asked to sell everything, all our earthly possessions, to enter the kingdom. But we are all asked to give up everything, to be willing to give up everything. And there's a little rich young ruler in all of us, isn't there? But remember this, we're talking about the kingdom. Every king kingdom has a king, and there's only one. So the kingdom of heaven it has only one king. Is it you, or is it Jesus? I wanna point out that progression, the fine sell, by. I call this a kingdom progression. But really, what we see is just a picture of conversion, don't we? He finds. In the finding, there is an understanding, a seeing of the value, like we see the value of Jesus. Then there's a selling, all that we have. That's a repentance. That's change. That's turning loose of this world to gain Jesus. And then we buy, we believe, we have faith we submit ourselves, our lives, to Jesus. So we find, we sell, and we buy. When, you're, when you've understood this, and when you have treasured Christ above all, we gladly will reorder our lives around the kingdom. For believers and members of this church, that's as simple as prioritizing kingdom events, we could call it, which is this morning, Sunday mornings, Lord's Supper gatherings. It's easy when we treasure Christ above all. It's easy when we treasure Christ above all to gladly look for ways to give up our time, our treasure, and our talent for the good of others. Josiah mentioned earlier opportunities to serve. This year is an emphasis on service for us. Last year was 2 and 22 with an emphasis on evangelism. This year we're calling serve and 23 uh, for service. Right? So we want to serve, but when you treasure Christ above all, it is easy to live others-focused, to serve others, because your world, your kingdom, is not about you. So look for ways to serve. And this isn't for the super-Christian. This isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for missionaries. This is for every Christian. Every Christian, we don't kind of treasure Jesus. He isn't our most and most. He is our all in all. So what could that look like in your life? Saints, how often do we settle for lesser treasures, for what I would call counterfeit pearls? Believer, if you're here and you're not a member of Desert Springs Church, and you're not a member of any outpost of the kingdom, which we would call a local church, then that is what you should do, whether here or elsewhere. Desert Springs, we have a membership class coming up in a couple of weeks. If you're a believer, you should be covenanted with a local body. That would be reordering your life around the kingdom. Non-Christian, if you're here today, I'm thankful that you're here, that you're listening. Let me ask you, aren't you tired of looking for value and worth in so many places, in so many things that cannot deliver on your return on investment? Come to the source of true joy. Sell your attempts to satisfy yourself and buy the only thing that will satisfy your soul, and that is Jesus. I was trying to think of examples. What what does it look like to give up everything? I don't know. I kept coming up with specific examples, uh, but I felt like I was in danger every time I would come up with something too specific. Uh, So other than the ones I've already given you, I don't know what everything looks like for you, but I know that it looks like everything. So I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be profound. I don't know what giving up everything looks like for you, but I know that it looks like everything. I think Paul had this parable in mind when he was writing Philippians 3 that Lucas read for us earlier, that indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Eric Reed, who's a pastor in Tennessee, said, Most of us have chosen heaven over hell. Not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. Does it sound like too steep a price to pay, giving up everything for this kingdom? I would say that you can't afford not to pay it And that's because there's a judgment coming. For the joy of treasuring Christ, we gladly embrace the cost of the kingdom and escape the judgment of the kingdom. Point number three: the judgments of the kingdom. In this third, Jesus connects with some fishermen. So, a little bit of literary context. If you look back up chapter 13, Jesus is speaking to the crowds with some of these parables, and then there's a shift where they move from the crowds to into the house with the disciples. So, Jesus, in these parables this morning, is in the house speaking with the disciples. And I think it's interesting that he uses just common trades that would have represented the majority of his disciples. So, either a farmer, or a merchant, or a fisherman. So for Desert Springs, that'd be Sandia, or a Sandia lab engineer, uh, small business owner, stay-at-home moms. Uh, Jesus uh, knows how to contextualize for his people. Um, And so so he's connecting with them and and moves into an illustration uh, of fishing and calls the kingdom a net, And it's also interesting, we'll talk about this, uh, that Jesus moves right into an explanation. He goes from the parable right into an explanation. In the previous parables, uh, with the sower and the wheat and the weeds, we saw him tell the parable, and then the disciples later are like, what was that about? Um, This time, he's in the house with his disciples, so he just tells them the parable, then he just tells them what it means, um, which is useful, and I'm thankful for that. So, uh, let's just consider the net. Consider the imagery here. This Again, historically, it would have been common practice uh, to cast a large, what was called a drag net. Uh, yeah, it could be rather large with uh, bobbers on the top, weights on the bottom. And they would just drag it across uh, the whole area they were fishing. So inevitably, the, f- the fishermen would catch more than just the fish they wanted to catch. They'd catch everything. Uh, it, was, it was indiscriminate fishing. They were just going through and catching whatever they could. So then they would have to have a... A, a, a sorting, a dividing. They would bring it, drag it all up, and sort the fish, the good and the bad. So a couple, couple of things to, uh, to point out here. This net is gathering all kinds of fish. And this could have been translated all races of fish, which is a weird way to talk about fish. But I think we get the, the idea that Jesus is trying to portray. This net, this gathering, is happening of all tribes and tongues, every every nation. Um, every race will be caught up in this net. Then in verse 48, it says, When it was full. So when it was full, when the fullness of time had come and the full number of the elect had been gathered in. That's Revelation 5. And also, like I said, it was indiscriminate. It was universal. Uh, This net of Jesus' teaching would gather all kinds of fish from every race, and when all had been gathered in, there would be a great sorting day. So they would drag it ashore, uh, there would be this separation, and then Jesus goes right into an explanation. So the fish are people, all kinds of people. Then the, uh, and the gathering is happening now. The sorting will come at the end, the end of the age, and then the angels will come and separate the evil uh, from the good, from the, the clean from the unclean. So, I think some biblical context that would help us here is Leviticus 11. In Leviticus 11, uh, it's laid out the stipulations of clean and unclean fish. And uh, without getting bogged down in everything that's going on in Leviticus 11, uh, we can see there that there's, there's a sorting happening in Leviticus. And through the law of God, he was separating his people from the nations. And this has been going on since the fall. God has been separating a people for himself. That was the purpose of the law. That is the church, and that will be at the end in the judgment. And, interesting, uh, a, a, a note on parables themselves. Jesus has been doing this separating work in telling, this, in telling parables, I think Ryan mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when Jesus is talking about parables and how they have this concealing effect for some and a revealing f- effect for others. That is a sorting. It is a separating. So all parables, in a sense, are an act of judgment, a separation. But this parable is clearly different than the, the treasure and the pearl. It's doing something different. So what, what's the connection? What, what's Jesus' train of thought here or Matthew in putting these three parables together? I think it's this. I think now is the time. Jesus is saying this to his audience, and I'm saying it to you. Now is the time for searching, for finding, for buying, for selling, and for gathering. Because a sorting day is coming. And Jesus is so valuable that anyone not willing to give up everything to receive him will be separated into a different kingdom. And Paul talks about this kingdom that all those outside of Christ are already a part of. He calls it the kingdom of darkness. Then in the explanation that Jesus gives, he starts talking about a fiery furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's this fiery furnace business all about? Uh, Ryan Ryan had a chance to deal with this uh, last week, uh, but he didn't, so he left it to me, so I really appreciate that. So... Jesus says, they'll be cast into the fiery furnace, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is going on here? Is this, is this literal language? Is this figurative? Um, what, is, what does that mean? Well, I think it is figurative. But the language can be figurative. So hang on with me for all you literalists out there. The language can be figurative, but it shouldn't bring us any comfort. Because that means it is far worse than words can describe. Jonathan Edwards says the figurative language here falls short of the literal truth. So at this point, we've left the parable and we've entered explanation when Jesus is using the language of fire and weeping. And this is not the first time that Jesus has talked like this, right? If you've been reading along and with us in the study of Matthew, and if you've studied Matthew before and the other Gospels, he spoke, Jesus spoke about heaven and hell more than All the other biblical authors put together. All the other biblical authors put together. Jesus, full of grace and truth. Jesus, gentle and lowly. He believed in a real hell, and we should too. So, some quick points about what Jesus teaches about hell. We won't even leave the book of Matthew. And you can just write these down quick. So, listen fast. Jesus teaches that hell is physical and spiritual. That's in Matthew 10. Jesus teaches that hell is a real place of torment. That's in our passage. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fire. Matthew 13. He teaches that it is eternal. That's in Matthew 25. It is never ending. And who is it for? Jesus says here in Matthew 13 that it is for the evil. the, the, The unrighteous. Matthew 25. It is for those who reject God. And in Matthew 25, it's for Satan and his demons. I'll remind all of you DSC members what our statement of faith says about hell. It says, We believe in a literal heaven and hell, and that all men will either spend eternity under God's just and holy judgment or in His glorious presence. Hell is real, and it is worse than you think. Just as we can't fully comprehend the glories of heaven, we can't grasp the gore of hell. A literal, physical, spiritual, eternal, horrible place for all of those that want to be their own God and Savior. It's what you get in return for giving up, uh, for not giving up everything for Jesus. It is the final destination of everyone who wants to be the captain of their own destiny. Hell is for those that choose to go and want to stay. And the day is coming, friends, when the gathering will end and the sorting will begin and a final judgment will be made. No more selling, no more buying. The market will be closed and the rest of eternity will begin. Don't wait. Don't wait for the sorting Weep now or weep forever. Pay now or pay forever. Put your sin to death now or you will be put to death forever. While it is still called today, put your hope and confidence in Christ alone. Beloved, this is what Jesus endured and defeated for us. Amen. This is what our sins deserved. Our sin was great. His love was greater, and through His death and resurrection, He now holds the keys to death and hell. He is the captain of our destiny. Praise God. For the joy of treasuring Christ, we gladly embrace the cost of the kingdom, to escape the judgment of the kingdom, and explain so others can understand the nature of the kingdom. Our last point this morning, understanding the kingdom. So after all these parables... And after all this talk of hell and fire, just imagine the disciples sitting there, eyes wide, and Jesus says, do you understand? And they're like, yeah. (laughs) Uh, This was Jesus' aim through all of the parables. Understanding. He asked them, do you understand? That was Jesus' goal for his disciples, was for them to understand. To understand what? to understand Jesus, to understand who he was and what he had come to do. So this comes at the end of seven parables. So if you like your Bible and you like numbers, you know that number is important. But we get a little bit of a bonus parable here, don't we? We have this, this picture of the house, uh, the master of the house, and the old and the new. Um, so just... Quick explanation, the old here, I believe, is Jesus is talking about uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. So the the Bible up until that point would have been what what was old, because he mentions the scribes, and the scribes would have been experts in the law, experts in the Old Testament. And then the new here is Jesus, everything he's been teaching about himself, about his kingdom, what he came to do. So a reminder that we need the Old Testament to fully understand Jesus, and we need Jesus To understand the Old Testament it's been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed the New Testament gives us the keys to unlock the treasure chest of the Old Testament and see its riches and that key is Jesus or the lens is Jesus like you pull out each treasure piece of the Old Testament you put on your Jesus lens then you can see what was really going on there. When we shine the light of Jesus on the old and the new, we see all the treasures of God's salvation. And a reminder that part of this understanding is your job. It's our job as hearers, right? When Jesus says, do you understand? So it's the preacher's job, mine this morning, and all, every preacher you sit under, it's, it's their job to explain, to be clear, to make a point. It is your job to understand. We are both held accountable here this morning. So just a warning. We are both judged this morning by what I'm saying and by what you are hearing and how you respond to it. So every time you sit under God's word, there is a judgment. And you are responsible for what you understand. So do you understand? Do you understand? When he talks about the master of the house, you see a man who has a grasp on all the old and the new in his house. We want men standing here each Sunday who know their way around the house. And praise God, church, don't we have an embarrassment of riches of Bible teachers? in our church, led by Ryan, Chase, Alex, Randy, and others who have taught over the years. They have been masters of the house. They have brought out treasures old and treasures new, faithfully for years. And that is the work of the kingdom. Praise God. And thank you, church, for your support of these men. So, Jesus says, if you understand, if you get it, then you need to give it. This, this section here is radical. Jesus says, if you understand, then you're like a scribe. Scribes would have been the, the teachers of the law, and only, only they would have been upper echelon of the religious. And so to say this to a bunch of farmers, fishermen, merchants that day, tax collectors, that is radical to say, you're like the scribe. But he doesn't stop there. I think he goes, he goes above and beyond. Jesus says, not only are you a scribe, you're trained in the kingdom, I think the ESV says, could be translated discipled in the kingdom. He's like, the scribes only know the old. You know the new. You know the old and the new. And now go and share and teach. So we have the responsibility to understand, church, and then to share. If we understand, we will share. We'll disciple others in the church. Disciple our families. We'll share with our neighbors share the joy we have in treasuring Christ by giving up everything for the sake of the kingdom and to warn others of the coming judgment, the coming separation. Non-Christian, judgment is coming and it's not too late. It's not too late to sell your hopes, to rule yourself, to save yourself and by Christ to put your faith only in Christ who gave up all to purchase His people through His death and resurrection. And He will treasure you now and forever. And He will never throw you away. So what does understanding look like? We talked about what does giving up everything look like. What does really understanding look like? What does treasuring Jesus really look like? Are you willing to give up everything to follow Him? Do you see and savor Christ above all? I think understanding Demands action. So the man in the field understood and he acted. The merchant understood and he acted. So understanding could look like this. For the disciples, if we just look at the next uh, phase of of history, after the disciples heard this message, uh, understanding for them looked like death. Because most of them would be martyred for their faith. So that's what understanding looks like. Not for everyone but for some, that's what understanding looks like. Understanding looks like prioritizing the kingdom in every area of your life, 24-7, 365. Understanding looks like leaving your home, your friends, and family to take the gospel to unreached people in North Africa and on the Navajo reservation and in Guatemala to the Achi. It's not what it looks like for everybody, but that's what understanding looks like. Understanding looks like Jim Elliot, who was a missionary to Ecuador in 1950. And just before he was killed by the people group he was trying to reach for the gospel, he famously said these words, He is no fool that gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Desert Springs Church, let's make that our whole personality. Christ is ours forevermore. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand now and respond in joy. May every heart find their treasure in Christ. Holy Spirit, empower us all to see and savor Christ as our greatest reward. Give us eyes to see his surpassing worth. Remove the fear of judgment and replace it with hope in his coming again. For your glory and the good of your people, we pray, amen.